I want to get right into the Word today in Revelation chapter 6, where we left off the last time I was teaching a couple of weeks ago. And if you're helped by notes, we do have those in your bulletin and you can follow along with the notes. But I'm gonna, we're going to be looking at chapter 6 today, which is the opening of the seven seals. And I'll begin reading that and read the entire chapter and then we'll pray. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by wild beasts of the earth. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they were completed, as they had, as they had been, was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair and the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty and every slave and every free man hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Father, we come to You this morning. God, asking for Your wisdom. Crying out to You, God, for understanding that we might know the signs of our time. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill my mouth. God, that you would take me as a weak vessel, Father, and empower me to be able to deliver your word properly. God, you love every person in this building. God, you love them and you have a plan for them. And this message is for today, for their lives today and for mine. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me to make application. God, bring it down to something that we can understand. 
And Lord, that when we leave, we would be inspired by your holiness and your majesty and your power and your might and your faithfulness to your promises. And God, that we would live differently as a result of our time here today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. The last time I spoke on Revelation, we were looking at Revelation chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we found that the Lamb of God was the only one who was worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the Father and then to open it. And now in chapter 6, we find him systematically removing the seven seals from the scroll, opening it, the title deed to the earth. With every seal that he opens, he's initiating something powerful that takes place on earth that become and will become known as the most catastrophic times ever known to the history of the world. It's referred to as the tribulation period. It's also known as the wrath of the Lamb, the day of the Lord, and the 70th week of Daniel, mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. It's going to come upon the earth following the rapture of the church and it will affect every living person, every living creature, everything that's made and that exists on the face of this earth. As we make our way through this book and through chapter 6 and the various plagues that will take place on earth, it's a very sobering and apart from Christ frightening proposition. The things that we're going to talk about today and that we're going to read about and that we'll look at in the weeks to come are printed words on a page that that seems so distant and so impossible. But it is going to happen and there are going to be events that will absolutely terrify men and women and young people in a way that the world has never experienced terror. The things that we're going to read about are things that I hope will motivate us to a life of holiness now. There's some reasons why I think that this book has been open to us. Why the Lamb of God determined that there should be these plagues. I mean, why couldn't He just have come back without any of these plagues? Why couldn't He have just judged mankind right away? Why all these plagues? We're looking at the seven seals today. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven trumpets and then finally the seven bold judgments. These judgments of God are are systematic and they grow in their intensity. They start out bad and they get worse. And by the time we get to the seven bold judgments, mankind wants nothing else to do except to die. They want to commit suicide. They want to die. And the Bible says they will not be able to. Their torment will not stop. Why would the Lamb of God determine that these plagues should come upon the earth? Why not just end it all now or at the second coming of Christ? Well, I think there's several reasons and I want to split these reasons up into two sections. The first is why he's even letting us know about these plagues before the rapture of the church. Well, I think there are three reasons among others. The first is to present us as believers with an early warning of sin's ultimate penalty. It's a way of God saying, look at the consequence, the ultimate consequence of disobeying God. The second is to inspire us to rescue every man, woman, and child in our circle of influence by sharing with them the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they don't have to go through the torment that will fall on the earth following the rapture of the church. And the third reason is to remind us of the ultimate end of evil. You know, when you can't deal with the injustice of the world and the psalmist cries out and says, How long, O Lord, will you let the wicked reign and rule? 
And it's a reminder that though the wicked and evil may sometimes be prevalent in the world today and sometimes may even seem to prosper, the Bible says that their time is coming and they will experience the wrath and the punishment of the Lamb of God. But I also think that there's a very intense and important purpose for these seals and these judgments that will fall on the earth even after the rapture of the church. And it points to the mercy of God because even after mankind has rejected Him and failed to experience the the coming of Christ in the clouds and the church being caught up away with the Lord in the air, the Bible says that these events and these judgments come to shake the people who are left that they might turn and receive mercy from God. And we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come, but there's actually going to be multiple opportunities for men and women, even after the rapture of the church, to turn to God. We've got the 144,000 witnesses that we'll talk about next week. We've got the two witnesses that will be witnessing for a period of three and a half years in, in Jerusalem. And then we also have three angels that are going to fly through the heavens proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ so every man and woman and child has an opportunity, a final opportunity to repent. And so these judgments will come in increasing severity with the objective of helping people to see the glory and the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ and giving them one opportunity more to finally to turn. But I have to tell you that men and women who are referred to as tribulation saints, most of them will suffer persecution and be martyred and killed for their faith. There will be very few Christians during this time frame who will be able to come to the very end to see the second coming of Christ. Most of them will die for their faith. Most of them are going to suffer many of these judgments as they wait on earth for the second coming of Christ. And so this is not anything you want to wait for. But it's another demonstration of the mercy of God and how deeply He longs that no one should be lost, but everyone would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now John begins in chapter 6, verse 1, and you'll notice a repetitive pattern here of the Lamb of God opening the seal and then one of the four living creatures stepping forward and commanding one of these messengers to come and to fulfill their obligation of judgment. And so John begins by saying, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice, like thunder, come. And he looked, and there before him was a white horse. And its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, who is this rider? Well, a number of possibilities have been suggested. There are three that are the most possible. One is that it may be Jesus Christ. People believe that this is possible because a very similar description of Jesus Christ takes place in Revelation 19 of Him coming on a white horse in conquest. There are some problems with this view, however. The first is that the Lamb is opening the seals and the, and the uh, angel is announcing this uh, edict that he, this angel should go forth or this messenger should go forth, forth and it seems unlikely that Jesus would be opening the seal and at the same time being the one that goes out and accomplishes, accomplishes this mission. It's unlikely as well that an angel would be commanding the Lamb of God to do anything. I don't believe that this rider is Jesus Christ. Others have suggested that it may be just a messenger 
just a, another angelic uh, being that's sent out on this mission of God and that's a distinct possibility. Finally, others have suggested this is the Antichrist himself. And this is quite possible for several reasons. One is that we know is from Daniel is that the Antichrist will begin his rise to power shortly after the rapture of the church. The church having been raptured, this world leader will rise to power in, in the most amazing of ways. The Bible says that he will pull together a confederation of ten nations for political and military power. Some believe that this will be uh, uh, one of the functions of NATO or possibly of the European common market. At this point in history, we're told from Scripture and from prophecy that there is going to be great social and economic upheaval as well as geopolitical chaos. There is going to be so much trouble worldwide that no nation, the United States, the UN, all of it put together, will not be able to put the world back together again. And the world is going to be looking for one singular leader who has the capacity and the power to bring peace once again to the earth. And the Antichrist is going to be their man. Unfortunately, the Jews, who've been waiting for this Messiah for millennia, have failed to discern and understand that the Messiah was Jesus Christ. And so they're still waiting. I was just meeting a, a man, a Jewish fellow came into the office this last week and has a desire to do Jewish ministry, but he's not a Messianic Jew, he's, a, he's an Orthodox Jew. And we talked about the Messiah and he said, oh no, yes, we, we know what you believe, but we don't believe the Messiah has come. And we had a chat about it. The Messiah, for a Jew, is going to be not divinity, but a man. That the Messiah will be a man just like we are, just human people. And that that Messiah will distinguish himself, among other things, most particularly as the person who will help them rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, there's a prophecy in Daniel again that this Antichrist will be the one who will come and help the Jews rebuild their temple during this seven-year period. He's going to make a pact with the Jews that he will rebuild and protect the Jewish nation of Israel and that they will rebuild his temple. But halfway through this pact, he's going to renege on his offer. And we know from Scripture again in Daniel 9 that this Antichrist will experience... A, a revelation that he is himself God and he will appoint himself within the temple that's been rebuilt as God himself and require all mankind, not just people in Jerusalem, but all of mankind globally to worship him as God. This is referred to as the abomination that causes desolation, again recorded in Daniel 9. Satan always comes masquerading as an angel of light. We know from Scripture that he is the father of lies. And anything that, he comes out of, anything that comes out of his mouth is deception. His power and his rise to power will be based on deception. If you look in this passage, some very interesting things. He holds a bow in his hand. This is an instrument of warfare and yet no arrows. This is going to be a bloodless conquest over the earth. People are going to be deceived, as it talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. And so this is how the world will, will fall on its knees before the Antichrist. They will be in a desperate situation at that point. 
The church will have been raptured. That will cause tremendous chaos in and of itself. But then the world will be in geopolitical chaos. There will be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and problems that the world will be facing at that point in time. And the world will be looking for someone to rescue them. Along comes this Antichrist. They won't be, he won't be identifying himself as an Antichrist, of course. But all of a sudden, he's going to have answers for every single problem that the world is facing. And the power to carry out these answers and to deliver. And he will have the power to do miracles, signs and wonders. And people will be in awe of the Antichrist. And they will willingly, without a fight, bow the knee to this pretender to the throne. And so it's no wonder that in the very first section, if this is the, indeed the Antichrist, he comes riding on a white horse pretending to be the Messiah of chapter 19. He was given a crown and he went out to conquer. Now John says in verse 3 that the Lamb opened the second seal and the voice of the angel or the living creature said, Come, and another horse, a fiery red one, came and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other and to him was given a large sword. Red is often associated with terror and carnage and bloodshed in the Bible. And this person, despite all human efforts, was given power to take away peace that this Antichrist had initiated. Many people believe that there will be a civil unrest, a civil war that will take place. This is not from an outside country, but even from within the, the political structure set up by the Antichrist, there will be dissension gradually as people begin to recognize his intentions and his plan. And there will be those who will fight and there will be an underground resurgence of men and women who are trying to take down the plan and the person of, G, of, the, of the Antichrist. And this angel or angelic being will be given power to cause men within the countries of these various areas that he'll be ruling, the Antichrist will be ruling, to slay one another, to come against their own family, their own uh, countrymen, in order to come against the Antichrist. In verse 5, we're told that the lamb, when he opened the third seal, the living creature said, Come, and he looked, and before him was a black horse. Now, black horse in, uh, in uh, Ezekiel, when we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse that are outlined for us there, represents famine. In his hand, he's holding a pair of scales. It's kind of an unusual piece of equipment for a rider on a horse to be carrying. But it's a reference to commerce and trade. And it's signifying that his judgment is not going to be a sword or slaying men, but it is going to be famine. The angel declares of these four living creatures that a quart of wheat is going to cost a day's wage. What this represents is a 12-fold increase in the price of foods, of agriculture, of anything that commerce has to deal with. There's going to be an, a rampant, rapid inflation that is going to be uh, such that the world has never experienced before. It's uh, told about uh, uh, in uh, Russia as well as it was in the, in the United States during the Great Depression that people were running around with, with huge amounts of cash and it was absolutely worthless. 
in Russia, people were running around with wheelbarrows full of, of, of rubles trying to buy bread and food. And it would cost enormous amounts of money to get even the basic essentials of life. At this point in history, because of this judgment of God as the Lamb of God opens a seal, it's going to take a man a full day's work to earn enough to feed himself alone. He doesn't have enough to feed his family or his children or his wife or anything else. He can only earn enough for one person to eat. There's going to be great famine and the world is going to experience death as a result of this famine. In verse 7 and 8, we find the Lamb opening the fourth seal and the fourth living creature saying, Come. And John saw a pale horse and its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind. And this rider was given power over a quarter of the earth to kill it by sword and by famine and by plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. This pale horse is actually in the Greek comes from the word chloros where we get our word chlorine from. It's kind of that pale yellow green uh, kind of the color that I remember turning a few times in my life when I was uh, sailing competitively years ago on, on Oahu, you know, where you're just feeling miserable, at, like death warmed over. Well, that's the color of this horse because it's significant that this horse is coming and he's announcing death that is about to take place on earth. And this rider's name is Death and he's followed by Hades. And he's going to be bringing in his wake pestilence or plague followed by famine and these two characters together are going to have power to kill a quarter of the earth. Now, it's a little difficult to imagine this, but let me put it in a little bit more concrete terms. We know that right now on the face of the earth there are about 5.25 billion people. This means that a quarter of this 5.25 billion people will be dead within the first year or two following the rapture of the church. Now this doesn't include all those that have already died of famine and the other judgments that have already taken place, but these two individuals, death and Hades, are going to be given the power by the Lamb of God to slay mankind a quarter. That means 1.3 billion people are going to die as a result of this horse being sent out, this rider accomplishing the purpose of God. That is the equivalent of China, all of China and all of the U.S. combined in the fell swoop. In a few days, in a, in a few weeks, however long this particular rider takes to accomplish his mission, 1.3 billion people will lose their lives. Now John, John's attention is taken as he watches the lamb open the fifth seal because now instead of horses he sees a vision of souls under the altar of the temple of God who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they had maintained. Now who are these souls under this altar and what is the altar? Well let me begin with the altar. The altar is the brazen altar in the temple. The brazen altar was a place where the innocent lamb would be sacrificed in atonement for sins. And so we find under the altar, poured out as a drink offering to God, the souls of these innocent men and women and young people who have died as tribulation saints, been beheaded, been slain for their commitment to the word of God 
and for their unwillingness to let go of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the altar is that place of sacrifice and here these souls, not believers now, but men and women and young people who missed the first, tribula- or the first rapture of the church or the rapture of the church and came to Christ following that time and died as a result of persecution or the plagues that came in the first three seals. And so they're under the, the, uh, the altar and they are there for two very specific reasons as we're told. Because of the word of God and because of the testimony that they maintained. It's interesting this word testimony is actually the Greek word martyr. That's where we get our word from, martyr. It means someone who is willing at any expense to testify or to give witness to what they are aware of and what they know to be the truth. And so these men and women, at the cost of their lives, continued to maintain. I love that word. You know, it doesn't just say that they gave testimony of Jesus Christ, but it says they maintained their testimony. Even in the face of death, these men and women would not let go of Jesus Christ. You know, it's been said that Every believer in Christ ought to be prepared for martyrdom. I had to ask my question, myself that question this week. Am I ready to die for Christ? You know, it's one thing to live for Jesus Christ. It's a whole other thing when you know that the future very possibly may include for some of us here martyrdom. We're not facing that right now, but we are in an increasingly hostile environment as Christians. And that's only going to worsen. But these men and women were willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that they would not fail to be rewarded for that faithfulness. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. There's a very special reward awaiting those who have lost their lives because of the testimony that they maintained in the Word of God. It's estimated that... uh, In the last 40 years, there have been over 10 million martyrs who have died because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. We don't see much of it here, but in all the Muslim countries, men and women are dying daily. In China, men and women are are being persecuted and killed daily for their faith. And this is going to only increase. In fact, in the last year, 156,000 men and women have died globally as martyrs for Jesus Christ. And so we need to be a people who are not only aware of the fact that this is going to happen in the future, but quite possibly, even in our lifetime, things are moving very rapidly, very rapidly, in a direction away from Jesus Christ. I don't need to tell you about that. You can see it in the newspaper. You can see it on TV. You can see it anywhere that you look in the world that every, any and every God is acceptable except the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one name that's not acceptable unless you only consider him a prophet or a good man. But as soon as you say he's God and that there is no other name under heaven by which men and women and young people must be saved, then all of a sudden, that sense of of acceptance of every religion ends and the church begins to suffer. And I wouldn't be surprised if in our lifetimes, if the Lord tarries and some of us die before His coming that we won't be facing some very serious questions about who we live for and how much we're willing to, how far we're willing to go. And one of the things I've talked to you about before is that 
Better to be prepared now. Mentally prepare yourself and think, what kind of a man and woman or woman am I going to be if I am faced with a question of bowing the knee to Satan or, or bowing the knee to some other god in order to eat or in order to live or in order to work or in order to have a home? How far are we willing to go for the name of Jesus Christ? The Bible says that as we looked at the seven churches earlier, that he is looking for men and women who will persevere to the very end. And those will be the ones that will be rewarded. And so I encourage you to be men and women who right now make a decision. Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ, forever and always to the very end, I will be his servant and his son or daughter and I will never, ever renounce the name of Jesus Christ under any circumstances, but I will live my life only for him, for his pleasure and for his glory, come what may. Don't you want to be men and women like that? That just are completely given to Jesus Christ. Now we find these tribulation saints who were martyred crying out to God. And they cry out in the scripture and they say, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? There are two things that they're interested in. Judgment of the inhabitants of the world and anytime the scripture in Revelation talks about the world's inhabitants it's talking about the unbelieving world that's remaining behind after the rapture of the church. And really this is a question that people have been asking for millennia. How long are you going to let evil reign and rule? And then they say avenge our blood. How long before you avenge our blood? There's a beauty in their question. And the beauty is is that they were obedient to Jesus Christ through their lifetime. Because the Bible says in Romans 12 that we are not to take revenge on anyone, but we are to let God be the one to judge. And so God says, vengeance is mine. So these converts during the tribulation period didn't take vengeance. They didn't come against and come up with their own plan like Moses and slay people. But they allowed the full vengeance of God to take place because they refused to do what God had commanded that they should not do, which is to take vengeance. And so they're crying out to God, to the Lamb of God, that He would avenge their blood. And of course, the tribulation is is the Lamb's first installment of His wrath against the wickedness and injustice in the world. And of course, as we know, it's going to get worse. Now, the Lamb of God responds in an interesting way rather than giving them a timeline, he says to them that each of them was given a white robe representing the righteousness of Christ in their works and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. And so these souls under the altar who have already been slain, innocent men and women who have done nothing more then worship Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as the King of the universe and their Savior, the only way to the cross, the only way to God, the only way to eternal life. That is their sin. That is their corruption. That is their injustice. And for that, they were slain. And Jesus says, there are more coming. He's leaving the door open. Why? Because He's merciful. Even in His judgment, He shows mercy. And he's telling these saints, these tribulation saints, there are still more yet to come before I exercise final judgment on the earth. And so they're asked to wait a little longer. 
Now after this happened in verse 12, John sees some remarkable cosmic disruptions that began to take place as the sixth seal was opened. It began with a great earthquake. Now all of these things are predicted in Scripture. These are all prophesied in the Old Testament. And I don't have time to detail them all for you except I'll give you the reference. The great earthquake was prophesied in Haggai 2.6 when God said, In a little while, yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. And so at the opening of the sixth seal, the first cosmic disruption that takes place is a great earthquake. Now there are three more to come. This is not the worst. The third one is catastrophic. It, it shakes the globe. This one does as well. This isn't a regional earthquake. This is a global phenomena. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in an earthquake before, but I, I uh, lived in San Diego for a few years when I was going to college there. And uh, I went through a few small earthquakes. And it's the strangest feeling watching everything. The first time it happened, I'd never been in an earthquake before. And I thought, you know, maybe... Uh, some sort of equipment ran into the side of the building or I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe all my roommates were dancing and worshiping God out in the other... I didn't know what was happening. But all of a sudden it dawned on me this is an earthquake. Everything was rattling. Stuff was falling off the shelves. Things were breaking. But if you really see a, a major earthquake, which I have never been in, the earth turns to jello. It just goes like a wave. Do anybody remember the L.A. earthquake sometime back and, and you saw the footage of just the whole landscape was just like jello. This earthquake is going to so far exceed anything we've ever seen before that it is going to terrify mankind. And it's not going to be regional. It is going to be a global earthquake. John goes on and says that the sun will turn black and the moon will turn blood red and stars are actually going to fall from the sky penetrating the earth's atmosphere and falling on the earth and the sky is going to recede like a scroll. These are incredible events. If any of you have had the opportunity to, to work with a scroll or parchment, it's very difficult to keep this thing open. You know, you've got to hold it like this and, you know, one leg over here and one hand over there, tape it down, put bricks on it. It's just very difficult to keep a scroll open. The natural tendency of a scroll, if left to itself, you open it up and let your hands go as this thing just rolls right back up again. And it's beyond me to describe to you how this is actually going to take place, but the Bible says the sky itself is going to roll up just like a scroll and we are going to be laid bare before God and before the elements. And finally, the sixth thing that's going to happen is that every mountain and island will be removed from its place. That has a particular interest to us, <laughs> I think. We have mountains and we are on an island. And the Bible doesn't say when it says removed, it doesn't mean like moved 50 feet one direction. It means it will be gone it will not be recognizable to, to what uh, people used to remember that event or that island or that mountain looking like. The Bible says that even mountains will be cast into the sea. How will these things happen? I can't explain it to you. I don't know. But it's well within the capacity and ability of God to do these things and He will do them. And my encouragement to you, living on an island, there's a very special importance to this for us. Because the Bible says that though there may be multiple opportunities through all the different judgments, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls that will come, 
for men and women to repent and to turn even up until the very last moment. The Bible says that the islands will be removed. That means we won't be here. That means everyone on this island will be dead. And so it's incumbent upon us to be even that much more diligent to share the truth with men and women that they might be saved, that they might know Jesus Christ, that they might be brought to the foot of the cross and experience forgiveness of sins that Jesus so freely offers any man or woman who would repent and receive him as Lord. Now, many people have suggested a variety of reasons why these events would unfold. Man-made reasons. For instance, nuclear war, that there will be a nuclear war that all of a sudden there are going to be so many warheads aimed at every continent that every continent will be hit. There will be a, a simultaneous attack as the we have our, our, our uh, operations that let us know exactly what's happening with the warheads in China and Soviet Union and elsewhere, and they certainly have the technology to know what we're doing, and there, there's going to be a simultaneous launching of all of these warheads, and the entire earth will be shaken, and the, the darkening of the sun and the moon turning blood red, and all these things will be the nuclear cloud that's going to take place and that's going to envelop the whole earth. Well, that's certainly a possibility. But my personal opinion is that it will not be the result of anything that man does. When I look back in Scripture, during God's judgment of Egypt, I don't see him needing a nuclear holocaust to accomplish his purposes. Nor do I see him needing anything involving mankind at all. But the ten plagues came purely from the throne of God. And it's my belief that what we're looking at here is the judgment of the Lamb of God, nothing more and nothing less. Now, it very well may be possible that some of these other events will take place at the same time, but my personal opinion is that any help for mankind will only detract from the majesty and the power of Jesus Christ. And one of the purposes that God has in judging the world, just as he did in Egypt, was to display his glory. And my personal thought is, is that if man can say, well, what are you talking about the glory of God? It was a nuclear bomb. Get real! that will diminish the glory of God. And again, personally, I believe these judgments, each and every one of them, God initiated and God designed are going to take place in such a manner that mankind will have no other option except to either acknowledge the Lamb of God and the wrath and the teachings of the Old Testament or else I have to come up with alien invasion or all kinds of outlandish I think, things and ideas in order to explain the events that are going to take place on the earth in these very tragic and terror-filled days. Now John records for us the response of mankind at this point. Very interesting. First of all, we need to acknowledge and recognize that this is a comprehensive impact. Look at what John says. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. Is there anything left? Every political, every powerful, every poor, every middle class person, a comprehensive spectrum of every person on the world is going to be affected in such a powerful way that we're told in verse 16 that these people are going to hide in caves and among rocks and in the mountains. Now, you know, maybe, it's, maybe I'm just kind of missing something here, but... Didn't we just have like a major earthquake 
and you think they're going to be aftershocks to any earthquake and all these incredible events are taking place, the last place I would go to would be in a cave. You know, we already know that the, the difficulties, even on this island, of cave-ins and rocks falling and people dying as they go hiking because of the uncertainty of the terrain on the island of Kauai. Certainly men and women are going to be hiding in caves all over the globe, but why? Why would they go to caves? I'd want to get out in an open area where I, I'm not going to get hit by something. But I think there are two reasons, and we're told why in this passage. The first is that they went into these places and they, because they wanted to die. It says that they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You see, we're not talking about people that are depressed here. We're not talking about somebody that got fired from their postal job. You know, we're not talking about somebody that, you know, got divorced. We're talking about the kings and the princes and every person, high and low, rich and poor, from every strata of life, are calling on the mountains and the hills to fall on them because they can't stand it anymore. You know, if you leave with nothing else today, I want you to imagine your neighbors and your friends in such a desperate condition that they would find themselves desiring death so greatly that they would do anything to die, including calling out and crying out to the mountains and the hills to kill them so they wouldn't have to suffer any more of the judgments of the Lamb of God. I'm telling you, friends, if that doesn't motivate you, nothing will. To share the gospel with your friends and family, don't wait any longer. Because once the rapture takes place, these events are in motion. There is no redemption for these people from these events. They will be redeemed if they turn to Christ during the tribulation, but it's going to cost them their very lives. And so these men and women and young people are going to be calling out. And I find it interesting in the midst of their terror, and we'll see this again and again as we go through this book of Revelation, why aren't they calling out to God? Why aren't they finally acknowledging the power of the Lamb? Why aren't they finally falling on their knees and saying, Oh God, we have sinned against you. And we have brought these judgments on ourselves. But no, they will not come to God. They will not acknowledge the Lamb. And so they pray to rocks and stones for their deliverance. They also want to hide from the face of God. You know, it's interesting when I've, times in my life, even as a Christian, where I've been in known sin, where I'm doing something I know is wrong, I'm not real anxious to get in God's presence. Can anybody relate to that? I'm, probably, I'm the only one that ever sinned after I became a Christian in here. But uh, there are other people like me out there, so I'm trying to help you understand how to relate to those folks. So, when I'm in sin and doing the wrong things, it's like I'm not real eager to get in God's presence. And these folks aren't either. They, they know they're wrong. They know they've, they've violated God. They know they're rebelling against God, but their pride will not let them come. And so they continue to resist and they say, I'd rather die than bow the knee. And in addition to that, I wanna, I, they're going to the hills and to the caves to escape the, the all-searching eye of the Lamb of God and His power. Of course, there is no escape. 
In Zephaniah, we're told that neither their silver nor their, nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In his fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Finally, we're told that they are absolutely powerless. Verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? No one can stand before the wrath of the Lamb. Malachi 3.2 says, But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one, great or small, will be able to stand in the face of the wrath of the Lamb. John 3.36 has a verse there that I'd like to just read to you. It summarizes really everything about the Gospel and everything about the the judgment of God and everything about life and death. It says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not only not see life, but God's wrath remains on him. That's really a summary of the entire Bible. Is that God, at this particular point in history, has left a huge window of grace open to mankind. And he's saying, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. You see, Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want even one person to be lost. But he gives man the choice to either experience his grace or to experience his wrath. I just want to close with a couple of thoughts. The first is if you're a believer, and I'm assuming that most of you here today are believers, is that I want to encourage you in the face of this really terrible judgment that's coming upon the earth is that you can have confidence that God's protection and deliverance is yours. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God has not appointed us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's my conviction that the church will not go through this suffering. And so we can breathe a sigh of relief and say, wow, thank you Jesus that you are going to deliver us from this coming wrath as these seals are opened. But the second thing I want to encourage you is that you can make a difference in the destiny of your friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we have been reconciled to God. Does everybody know what that means? It means that we were at odds with God because of our sin. But now because of Jesus' atonement on the cross for us, paying the penalty for us, we can be made right once again with God by receiving that gift repenting of our sin and asking Christ to once again rule and reign in our life, at that very moment, a man or a woman or a young person has a brand new relationship with God, the Father, that's eternal. And Paul goes on and says, having been reconciled, God has now given us the ministry of reconciliation, helping other men and women and young people come to know that newfound restored relationship with a father that was broken because of sin. Now, if you're an unbeliever, or what I would like to refer as not yet a believer here today, 
The tribulation and the wrath of Lamb is not what God desires for your life. The Bible makes it clear that God says in Jeremiah 29.11 that His plans are to not harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. That's God's design for your life. He tells us also in Ezekiel why that may not happen for certain people. Because they will not repent of their sin. They will not acknowledge God as the only true God. They will not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only one through whom a man or a woman can receive life and eternal life and salvation. But Ezekiel gives us a warning and an encouragement. And for those of you that have not yet accepted Christ, I'd like to encourage you to listen carefully. These are the words of God. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit, which comes, of course, through Jesus Christ. Why will you die? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. These passages of Scripture, as we go through chapters 6 through 19, are terrifying. There's no question about it. But all through this is the promise of God for the church that we will be delivered and also the promise that He has given us that we can be used to reconcile men and women to God. God is merciful. It's not His desire to harm anyone. But God finally and ultimately will hear the prayers of those under the altar as well as the prayers of mankind for millennia. Is God, when will you judge the earth? When will you bring justice to these unjust situations that we face on a daily basis. And the Lord Jesus says in no uncertain terms, I am coming. And my encouragement to you is to draw close to the Lord. You have nothing, nothing to fear if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not, today may be your day to not only experience freedom from this judgment that's coming, but also an intense and beautiful and lasting and permanent relationship with the God of the universe who loves you and wants to reach you and wants to deliver you and free you from guilt and the punishment that's certainly coming upon those who have sinned and not repented of sin. And so I implore you, I encourage you, be a man and a woman after God's heart. Realize that the time is short and make every moment that God has given you count for the purposes, the everlasting purposes of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we're humbled by it. And God, we're inspired at the same time. And God, it puts in my heart and I hope in the hearts of my friends here a desire that we would get busy with your work. Lord, we've busied ourselves with our own things and taken care of houses and lawns and cars and boats and all kinds of hobbies that we've got. And There's nothing wrong with enjoying these things, but God, may we not be captivated by them, Lord. God, may we realize they're temporary and, and shortly you will be arriving, shortly you will be catching us up in the clouds to meet you in the air, to reign with you forever. And yet, God, there will be those on the earth who will be suffering intensely. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't wait any longer to be bold to reconcile and to preach a message of reconciliation to those in our circle of influence. And so, God, use us today. And Father, we thank you that what's coming upon the earth you've promised to deliver us from. And God, we worship you. And we look forward to your coming. And we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
In the meantime, help us to work with all the energy you've given us for your purposes and for your will and for your glory. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.